Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Showing Up to Life podcast and YouTube channel. My name is Art Burns, and I am super, super happy and excited to be here with you today to discuss some sort of ideas, some concepts, and maybe even a couple of practices. I don't know if we'll have any actual practices today, but oftentimes in these episodes I do. Um, but really, it's about kind of supporting ourselves and supporting each other through this journey in life and and doing so in a way that is about showing up, right? Which is to say, being present with what's happening in the only time that things happen in our lives, which is the present moment, which is now, right? Even calling it a moment is a little bit, um, uh, you know, inaccurate, right? It's really just about now, right? And and now is when everything happens. But, all, you know, a lot of times what we do in our lives is we're not, you know, as we're sitting here at a desk or, or at a dinner table or something, we're not really here. Physically, we're here, but mentally, we're thinking about what's happening tomorrow or next week or what happened last week and what happened last year. And, oh, boy, remember that time when I was a kid and that thing happened to me, right? And, of course, memory and, and thinking about the future, those are positive things in most cases. But when it becomes, it crosses a tipping point into rumination or into worry, that's when we are no longer here. We're no longer showing up to life. And the problem with that is that while we're ruminating or worrying about some past or future potential, you know, that's when life reaches out to us to interact with us. And in that moment, we're not available to it. So that's what showing up to life is all about. And so today I want to talk about how this, in this first segment anyway, uh, I want to talk about how this kind of uh, relates to our relationships right? Relate to relationships. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> Lots of relating. <laughs> um, because you see, and I just did a TikTok video about this. And also, just so you all know, I mean, I do a TikTok video every day. Hopefully, I try to do it every day. I do a uh, three-minute mindfulness uh, video on TikTok where I just guide everybody through a brief meditation of three minutes. And then I also do a couple of little videos of a minute each. And they're usually you know, subjects that, that reflect here. It's sort of a condensed version. So if you all are interested, follow me on TikTok, all right? Art Burns, art, art underscore mindful is my name on there. So anyway, um, as we grow up in our lives, or actually I shouldn't say as we grow up, but for our entire lifespan, right? And when we say that, of course, what we're talking about is from the moment we are born and literally from the second we are born until we take our last breath on this earth, right? We are subject to two very specific, now there's others, but there's two very specific biological imperatives that I want to talk about today. Let me finish this little tea before I waste this last precious sip. It was already cold. <laughs> so there's two biological imperatives, okay? And I, and I do mean like from the very first breath you take, you are subject to both of these, okay? One emerges a little later on, only by a couple of years. So let's talk about what these two are. The first biological imperative that I'm talking about here, and again, there are many biological imperatives we have, right? We have to drink water. We have to eat food. We have to exercise our bodies, right? This is by no means the only two things that we are directed by our biology to do, but these two are true for everyone, okay? So, uh, and they really apply to mindfulness. <laughs> That's why we're talking about these two and not water and exercise and sleep and all that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> the two biological imperatives that I'm talking about are attachment 
and authenticity. Attachment is a tricky one, right? And especially when we talk in the concept, in the context of, uh, of mindfulness and compassion, because these, these concepts are often associated and, and certainly are rooted in Buddhism, right? And to Buddhism, attachment is like, that's the problem. <laughs> like we can't be attached. We have to be unattached to everything. Of course, in Buddhism, they're talking about attachment in the sense of clinging, right? Like, like attached to the idea that it's got to be sunny tomorrow on my day off, right? or you know, going to play golf, it's got to be a nice day. If it's not a nice day, I'm going to suffer. That's the attachment that they talk about in Buddhism. So here, let's talk about it in terms of connection. Okay, maybe that's an easier sort of way to wrap our heads around it and not be in conflict with our friends in the Buddhist world, right? Um, so, so this connection that we have, right? Again, it is not a luxury, right? It is a biological imperative. There were some, I, I think I mentioned this the other day, but maybe you missed it. There were some um, absolutely questionable ethically um, or ethically questionable um, experiments done a number of years ago using uh, monkeys. Right? I believe they used rhesus monkeys, but I'm not sure about that. But these monkeys were born and they gave, and, and monkeys are very, very similar to us in terms of our biology. So the only, the real difference is become in the neocortex, right? So so when you're doing like, you know, brain scans, you know, monkeys and, and humans are going to differ quite a bit, right? But when you're talking about the overall biology, it's very, very similar. So what they do is they use a monkey to simulate what would happen to a person, okay? Just so you understand the, the, bio, the uh, science behind that, okay? So in this experiment, and again, really, this is a trigger warning for any of you out there who are animal uh, lovers or activists, and it's ironic today I'm wearing my... Um, my uh, um, Love in Arms uh, Sanctuary Farm t-shirt, which is a heart shaped of the shapes of, of horses and cows and pigs and I think a goose or, or some. And, and this is, you know, I am very, very much a part of the animal uh, rights activism world. So, so this is hard for me to say. And so please see this as a trigger warning for any of you vegans out there, okay? Um, but this, this experiment that they did, and, and it was, you know, large enough scale, right? And so, so what they did was they allowed these monkeys to be born, right? And they checked their health, right? And the monkeys were born normal, right? Everything biologically, everything's fine, right? And they took these monkeys and they placed them in like an, you know, like a Niku kind of thing. Like, you know, they had everything they needed, right? They were, they were kept warm. They were fed. They were kept hydrated. They, uh, again, probably UV light on them, right? The, the whole thing, everything they could possibly need from a biological level was provided for these monkeys. But nobody ever picked the monkeys up, okay? That never happened. And I don't remember how long it took, but it was like weeks and the monkeys died. All of them. All of them, they died by lack of connection, right? And so, I mean, this has been studied in many other ways in psychology and, and, and other, you know, forms of science, right? But, but this, I mean, really on a, on a life and death level, right, it is that important for us to be held, right? To be connected to others. And this, again, this, this starts when you're, you know, first born, Right, like that's what the, the baby knows the mother's scent 
because the baby can't see yet. In the first nine months of, 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 of human um, uh, infancy, it's like we're still in the womb. You know, we're, we're outside the womb, but it's still a gestation period, right? Like no baby under nine months old can survive on its own. Right. And so so there's a system by which, you know, the, the eyes aren't open yet. So the baby can't recognize anything visually, but there's a scent of the mother that the baby recognizes, specifically around the nipple. And that's what the baby is drawn to immediately. Like five minutes after it's uh, it's born, it's it could be sucking on a nipple to, to get milk. Right? And so it knows its mother. <laughs> Right, it already has that 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 system in place by which it knows who to connect to. That's how much of a biological uh, biological imperative this is. Now, the second biological imperative, which develops a, a little bit later, not not that much, like maybe two or three years old. Right, we start developing our authenticity. Right now, your authenticity again. A lot of people consider this to be sort of a, a luxury, you know, almost like connection. Right, like people think I can live without anybody. People who say that are, are suffering from trauma and and dysregulate disintegration uh, in their brain. That is, a, that is a sign of unwellness to think, oh, I can do this all on my own. It's tough. It's stoic. I get it. I feel it because my trauma dictates the same thing for me. But it's not true. It's a delusion. Right, we do need connection to others. Okay. And so it's not a luxury, and neither is the authenticity a luxury. Okay. Now, authenticity, the way I define authenticity, is the ability to inquire of your intuition, right? And and to use that information that that authentic that 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 intuition provides you and use that to guide your decision making. Okay, now let's look in the history, in the, in the long evolutionary history of modern humans, right, which is about 170, 180,000 years old as far as we know at this point. That could change at any time as they keep digging up bones and stuff. But, but it's at least, say, a couple of hundred thousand years old, right? So, so 150,000 years old, 150,000 years ago, right? If, and I think this is a, um, uh, uh, an example that was uh, called to my attention by Dr. Galvar Mate in a, uh, a course that I'm taking with him. I just love it so much. The way he described it is so kind of cool. Um, but, you know, 150,000 years ago, if, if your ancestors were standing there, you know, and, and they saw a saber-toothed tiger 100 yards away, right? You know, even before they knew what a saber-toothed tiger was, right? They didn't have a name for it. They didn't have, you know, much understanding of it at that point, you know, at least on a personal level, right? Like, I don't know what that thing is. It's the first time I'm seeing this thing, right? But crap, I can tell that it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat me if I let it, right? You're not sitting there thinking like, huh, what is that thing? I've never seen one of those before. Look at those big, long teeth, huh? You know, he doesn't look that hungry right now. I wonder if I should go over and try to pet him. If humans did that, we wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? And so, so again, this is an intuition that is really passed down generation from generation from generation because at some point somebody knew that that saber-toothed tiger was going to, you know, it, it ate my friend, you know, so, so it's no good. That's part of our evolution, right? That's part of that intuition of our evolution, right? 
And of course, the same thing goes on again throughout our lifespan, right? When we're kids, I remember both my kids, they both did the same thing on the same darn lamp. <laughs> they both touched the same light when they were babies, right? And they cried and they, they, they felt a great deal of pain and fear. And that was encoded in them. So now for the rest of their lives, they know that when they see a light bulb, it's, it's going to be hot and it's going to hurt. And so therefore, they have an intuition about that, right? So it's not every time they go through it, they say, oh, I wonder if that light bulb's hot. Ow, it's hot again, <laughs> you know? And of course, that's a very simple and basic example of, of the authenticity that I'm talking about, right? But, but again, what I want to talk about now in the last three or four minutes that we have here of this segment is I want to talk how this, how this involves itself in relationships, Okay, because in a lot of times in our personal, interpersonal relationships, especially when it's a romantic relationship or a deep friendship or even a, a, a deep partnership, right? Even like someone with whom you're, you know, a business partner or something, right? It, it all applies, right? And, and what happens though, when we get into a deep relationship, and I mean deep relationship as opposed to just, you know, uh, some guy at work, you know, like <laughs> I don't really have to, I don't have to be authentic with that person. I don't have to really connect with him. You know, we're, we're just working together, right? So that's a relationship, but it's not a close relationship. So the relationships I'm talking about are the deep ones, okay? And so, so when we enter into relationships, oftentimes these two biological imperatives are at odds with one another. And a lot of times what we do, and this happens in, in cases of trauma, hello, <laughs> um, that, that what we do is we sacrifice the authenticity for the connection, for the attachment, okay? Now, again, this happens in, in abusive situations because, you know, you're, you're, again, from like even before you came out of your mother's womb, you had a connection to her. And that connection is never going to be something that you can easily let go of. It will cause a psychic break. And this is what, you know, uh, the, the theory is that this is where th uh, split personalities come from, right? When they're in the most extreme version of what I'm talking about here. But the thing is that in, in times of abuse, this person who is everything is also the person hurting you. And so you have to sacrifice that authenticity to become the thing that this person wants you to become so that they stop beating you, right? Now, the thing is, though, that this also happens later in life in, in romantic relationships or, again, even deep friendships or, or, or very deep partnerships. We, we give up that authenticity because we need that connection. And technically, just like when we were babies, it's encoded in us that, that the connection is more important than the authenticity. Right now, this, this all has become much more complicated in modern society, right? Like in, in ancient time, 150,000 years ago, you didn't have these conflicts, right? There was no, I can't imagine there was child abuse at that point, right? And again, well, we'll get into that in a different uh, episode. But, but the, the idea here, though, right, is that as Dan Siegel talks about, Dr. Dan Siegel, right, when we get into a, a, a relationship, right, that relationship, you know, we need to, to be authentic in that relationship in order for the relationship and the two in, individuals in the relationship to be healthy and integrated and, and prosperous, right? We need to be both. We need to have the connection and we need to have the authenticity. But again, a lot of times we sacrifice the authenticity 
in favor of the connection. I'm afraid this person's going to leave me, so I got to become what she wants me to be, right? And as Dan Siegel talks about, right, when we get into a relationship, we want to make it like a smoothie between the two of us. Uh, I'm sorry. No, that's opposite. We want to make it like a fruit salad in between two of us rather than a smoothie, right? A smoothie is when you just mash everything up and you just become homogenized, right? But a relationship is all about me being my authentic self, you being your authentic self, and our two authentic selves combining and linking with each other. Okay, but in no time do you lose your essence, your individuality, in a healthy relationship in which both partners are healthy, okay, and integrated and well, okay? But now here's where it gets really cool, (laughs) all right? As I've told you here many times before, that you know, from the also from the moment we're born, right up until we take our last breath on this earth, right, our minds and even our physical brains are being formed by every one of our our experiences, every one of our intentions, every one of our decisions across that entire lifespan. Right. Modern neuroscience tells us that what we believed for hundreds of years is completely false, that that when when our brains are formed and fully developed, they don't stop changing. Now, the question is, are you moving your brain into a more solid and and more sort of um, uh, inescapable level of unwellness Right in terms of disintegration, in terms of um, you know stress and fear and and uh, you know anger and all these different kind of things that we can practice, right? So in other words, if you're angry all the time, then you're you're teaching your brain, you're you're you know you're encoding that anger into your brain permanently. Well, I mean, not not permanently, but but again, it's what direction you're going to. Are you pushing further and further and further into that anger by practicing anger? Or are you moving towards integration and wellness by letting go of anger and practicing compassion, right? And practicing meditation and mindfulness to build that integration of the brain, right? It's something, again, it happens throughout your lifespan. It never stops. I mean, right up until the minute that you take your last breath, your brain, your brain is constantly reforming itself. Now, the same holds true with a relationship, right? A lot of times we think of a relationship as this static, you know, complete thing, right? Like, hey, we had the wedding, we're, we're married now, that's it, right? That's not true. Just like your brain and just like your mind, the process of your, <laughs> of your energy and information flow, according to Dan Siegel, um, you know, along with all of this, right, you're, you know, or in the same way that your brain is constantly developing, Based on your experiences, so is your relationship developing based on your experiences. So is your relationship moving towards being a fruit salad or is it moving towards being a smoothie? Is it moving towards a place of, of wellness, uh, you know, integration with differentiation and, and based in love and compassion and kindness? Or is it moving away from all that? And what you will find is that if both individuals in the relationship 
are working on themselves and and moving their brains and their minds in that direction of integration and wellness, then the relationship is going to move in that direction as well. Because again, as Ram Das said, said, you can do nothing for me but work on yourself, and I can do nothing for you but work on myself. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back in just a minute with the next segment. Welcome back to segment number two of today's episode. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be a little bit quick. I'm going to try to, you know, I'm just trying to be respectful of everybody's time. I've been told by a couple of people in my audience that 30 minutes is really the magic number. And so I try to keep it at 30 minutes. But as you can tell, even now, as I'm trying to keep it brief, I'm going on and on and on with my talking, which means that I'm in a right, you know, this is the right kind of occupation for me to be doing this kind of stuff. But anyway, putting on my uh, crooked looking glasses, these glasses make me look like I just walked into a door, uh, but they're not, they're not crooked. It's just the cal- the camera doing this. So, um, so I wanted to talk really quickly about, I want to follow up on on what we were talking about uh, in the last segment, which is the the sort of connect the um, the the biological imperative of connection slash attachment and authenticity. Right, these are two things that we are biologically driven to. Okay, they're not luxuries, and, and in the absence of these things, we experience health and and psychological issues. Right. And so, so let's talk about the nervous system for a moment, okay? And specifically the vagus nerve, which, which apparently is everything with the autonomic nervous system, right? Now, according to Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the author of an amazing book. Um, now, honestly, I have not even read the original book because apparently it is really, like, I, I consider myself pretty hardy when it comes to some of the science stuff. Like, I remember there's a book uh, called Altered Traits uh, with uh, Richie Davidson and uh, Dan Daniel Goleman. And, like, in chapter 15 or something, they say, not to get too nerdy about this, like, <laughs> get nerdy. You've been nerdy for 150 pages already, and it's great. But anyway, uh, apparently this book uh, called The the Polyvagal Theory by Stephen Porges is over the top scientifically. Like I couldn't even, I, I'm told that I wouldn't even be able to comprehend it, which is fine. I'm not looking to challenge anything. But in response to this, <laughs> Dr. Porges published a, a book called The Handbook to the polyvagal theory, uh, yeah, polyvagal theory, which is um, basically a record, a, a written transcript of a couple of interviews that he had, right, um, with uh, with a, a, a psychologist, um, and so. So, so that one I recommend reading. I don't know if I could recommend the polyvagal theory itself, but the handbook to the polyvagal theory, great read. Um, but in this in this um, in this work. Dr. Porges has done some really amazing, amazing discoveries, okay? And so the vagus nerve, right, which is where the the term vagal comes from, like so polyvagal theory addresses the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is also called the 10th cranial nerve. It's, you know, got two names for whatever reason. Starts in your brainstem, which is the top of your spine, right, where the spine meets the brain, right? That's that's and that's the most ancient part of your brain, by the way. That's the same thing that we share with lizards, right? There's no emotion. There's no. It's, it's just really just purely, you know, biological stuff, including fight or flight. 
Okay, and that's important here. Okay, that that fight or flight is something that's not done with your thinking brain. It's done with your your you know. It's something that is perceived by your nervous system itself, not by you. Which is what happens when we you know a lot of times we feel like oh I get scared so then I run right but it's actually the opposite you you your your nervous system your your neuroception as dr porges calls it perceives a threat outside of your consciousness and it reacts to that by making you run right it, it drives your body fight or flight right and and it's after you do that thing after you make that move that's when the emotion of fear sets in fascinating isn't it so anyway, <laughs> the, the vagus nerve is what controls the, 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 the regulation between the two branches of our autonomic nervous system. Now, the autonomic nervous system is made up of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, right? But according to Dr. Porges, what's happening in this activity is not so much that there's two separate things going on. But there's a hierarchical reaction or response to the stimulus that we experience, right? And so it's, it's much more accurate to say that the vagus nerve kind of holds off the sympathetic nervous system, which is the stress. That's the one that drives everything up and, and makes, you know, fight or flight and all that, right? So, so it's, it's like it holds off that sympathetic nervous system and allows the parasympathetic nervous system to, to be, you know, active, right? So it's all controlled by this vagus nerve, right? Which again, it starts in your brainstem and it touches every, well, not every single, I don't know if it's every single one of your, your major organs, but almost all of them, right? It touches your heart. It's involved with your breathing. It, 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 it wraps around your gut, right? And so, so, and, it, and it's also, unlike most nerves in your body, it's a two-way street, Okay, so it is sending information out to these organs and also receiving information from the organs, okay, which is also very fascinating. So here's how this hierarchy works, and this is what I wanted to, to talk to you about, okay, that, that there's this hierarchical kind of um, sort of status or modes to our nervous system in this way, right? So when we're feeling healthy and safe and, and calm, right? That is what we know as the parasympathetic nervous system that is active in that point, right? We are in the, what we call the rest and digest state of our body, right? But, but here's really interesting. What Dr. Porges calls it is not the rest and digest, which is seen as the opposite of the fight or flight, but what he calls it is the social engagement mode, Okay, now this is really important because remember in the last segment, I talked about those two biological imperatives, right? Imperatives, sorry. And, the, and the, the one that is, again, the most important thing, like from the moment we're born, right? We need to connect to each other. We need to socially engage with one another, okay? So, so what Dr. Porges is, is putting forth in this polyvagal theory is that that, that moment, that, that, that state of our body that is calm, restful, you know, open and perceptive, not stressed, right? Not feeling any kind of activation of our sympathetic nervous system, right? That is where we are open to connection to other people, which is again, a biological imperative, right? That is also where we find our authenticity, 
right? Because the minute we leave this, this state of social engagement, now we're going to go into a three-step hierarchical process, okay? And this is always in response to a threat, Okay, now here's the, the thing though, right? As I talk to you a lot about here, and this is something that's always important to remember. The brain does not know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger standing over there and the thought that maybe there's a saber-toothed tiger over there, right? Or the memory of a saber-toothed tiger. This is why people, when they dream, they, they literally, they get heart racing and they, they get out of breath. If, if you're running through your, your dream, you're literally gonna become out of breath even though you haven't run anywhere, right? Because your brain is telling your whole body like, holy crap, this thing's chasing us. We got to run or, or we got to catch this thing that we're running after in our dreams, right? And so, so this hierarchical thing that happens, okay, we go from the socially engaged or the social engagement mode of our, so, of our nervous system, which is also again called the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, okay? We move from that first, our first line of defense in our nervous system is the fight or flight response, right? This is when we perceive that whatever it is that's threatening us, I can either outrun it or I can fight it off, which might not be true with a saber-toothed tiger, right? But, but whatever it is that I feel that I can do something about it, okay? So when your body feels that, right? Your vagus nerve allows the sympathetic nervous system to start doing its thing. And that sympathetic nervous system, you know, initially in the fight or flight mode, it creates, it floods your body with adrenaline and cortisol and gets you going, right? Like you have like high, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory, you know, you're, you're, you're ready to go. Give me all the energy. And, and all of the blood is moving from your viscera around all your organs where it really belongs and moving out into your muscles of your, your arms and your legs and your back so that you can either run really fast or fight really hard, okay? Now, if our nervous system, and again, this is not a cognitive process. This is your nervous system deciding what is really happening here. It's not trusting your brain, okay? It's taking over, right? Your brain can do whatever the heck it wants. Your nervous system is going to take over this, right? So when your nervous system perceives that running away from that tiger is not an option and nor is fighting that tiger with those huge claws and those big teeth, now I go to the next phase of my sympathetic nervous system or the next polyvagal state, which is, uh, which is freeze. Pardon me, I got lost there for a second. So we go from fight or flight to freeze. And in that moment, that's where our system locks us up, right? It, it enables us to be really quiet and really still. Even as we're terrified, because if I'm really still and quiet, maybe the tiger will walk by me and won't see me, right? So that's the freeze. Okay, so we go from fight or flight to freeze. And then if, we, if our nervous system perceives that even that is no longer an option, right? Like if the tiger sees us anyway, then we go into the mode of faint, and that is not 
just losing consciousness, right? And of course, it is losing consciousness, but we're losing consciousness because the vagus nerve is actually slowing down our heart rate and our respiratory system that our body literally passes out. It literally goes into a death of sorts, okay? We play dead, right? And this is what a, a possum will do as, as a means of, of of, of real defense. But here's the thing, the possum is built with a mechanism to wake itself up out of this, right? Through the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of the possum, it has developed this, right? We don't have that. So when we go into that place of faint, you know, sometimes it's, you don't come out of it, right? It's, it's, it's a very, very serious thing for us. And, and for humans, you know, this is often trigger warning here, please. Okay, everybody trigger warning. I'm about to talk about a sexual abuse, okay? Give you time to pause. Okay. People who experience sexual abuse, right? Or rape or, or you know, prolonged kind of thing like that, like a human trafficking kind of situation, right? Those people will go into that faint mode, right? Where they, they literally, like, they know that there's no way they can get out of this, right? And so they go into that faint mode and literally... You know, they, they almost make themselves, they try to make themselves die in a way, right? So, <clears throat> so I just thought it would be interesting for you to know that that's what's going on in your nervous system when you're, um, when you're experiencing, when you're experiencing the, the um, you know, the, the stress in your body, right? That that's what's going on in the stress in your body, okay? It's either the, you're either in social engagement, you're in fight or flight, you're in freeze, or you're in faint, and it is in that order all the time, okay? Now, here's the thing, right? When we are in any one of those bottom three modes, our biological imperative then is to get back to social engagement mode, and that's very important for you to understand, and that's what the practices of mindfulness are all about, as well as compassion, right? It's all about undoing that that stress, or or not undoing it, but 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 bringing a regulation to our body so that we can then get back to those those biological imperatives of connection and authenticity. Because in the stress response, in the fight or flight, freeze or faint, you are not being authentic, right? You are then in a in a biological state that is not really you. Okay, so the, so the drive is always to come back to social engagement, to come back to connection and authenticity. And, and really, even in a, a life level, I know I'm way over time here, sorry everybody, but, but even like in a, a daily life level, right, this is important, right, because when we're in that place of stress, right? We are not making positive decisions. We're not making decisions that are, you know, encompassing the, the whole of the benefit to us, right? We are making decisions based on, on a very short-sighted kind of thing. And oftentimes those decisions have consequences to them because they're not well thought out and those consequences cause further stress, okay? So when you're feeling stress in your body, right? It's always the benefit or, or always the imperative to get back to homeostasis, get back to your base level of social engagement, right? And this also comes in very importantly because when we are stressed, when we are experiencing fight or flight, freeze or faint, right? 
it's better not to do that alone, right? Usually the solution to whatever's causing this, unless it's it's brain-driven, right, which is just the thoughts of the worry about something and the rumination about something, but if it's a real thing in our lives, like, holy crap, I can't pay my rent, I'm going to be thrown out of my house, the best thing you can do is to connect to others, that's what we've known again for 200,000 years, right? The very earliest humans, they banded together into tribes because in every situation, connection and authenticity are the way. Your inner nature is to be authentic and to be connected to others. And so even in those times of stress, the best thing we can do is reach out and connect to other people and find help in that way. But what we normally do is the opposite. We normally isolate ourselves and we disconnect ourselves and we become unauthentic in that process. So I hope this all ties together for you. And if it doesn't, if you have any questions about this, I want to hear from you, okay? Because this is really important stuff. All right. And it impacts every area of your life. I promise you that, including your health. Right. You know, we can talk about telomeres. Maybe that's an episode we should brush up on. Uh, But literally your biological, your cellular health is is reliant upon everything we're talking about here. Okay, so so literally you can live longer. There's no question about that. They measure the telomeres. I'll get to this again. We're, we're way over. But, but they, they measured uh, the telomeres, which are the ends of your chromosomes. And we'll get into this in detail in another episode. But they measured these in people who are uh, parents of, of special needs children, right? Which is an extraordinarily stressful existence, right? Because every moment of every day, you are, you know, again, it's not usual for human beings to need this kind of care for years and years and years and years. And so it causes stress on the care. Caregiver. And so they measure the telomeres of people who are in these kind of situations of, of caregivers of, of people who are not well, and they compared those to a control group, same age, same ethnicity, same health and stuff like that, and they found that the people, the parents of special needs children, their telomeres had, had shown like six or seven years of aging beyond the others. So literally we're shortening our lives with all of this that I'm talking about. So this, all of these practices and stuff that I talk about here, it's not just to feel good. It's actually everything, including the length of your life. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope it made sense. I hope it helped. And again, if not, I want to hear from you, okay? And in the description, there'll be a link for you to get in touch with me directly, but you can always send me an email or leave a comment on one of the videos. All right, everybody, thanks again. I wish you well. Talk to you soon.